0: A huge week in Canberra for a people's bank. And UN Skullduggery produces another WMD-style farce. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report, it's the 9th of September 2022, I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Matt Robson from New Zealand. Welcome Matt.
1: Thank you Robbie, good to be here.
0: So on this week's show we're going to talk about what you and I've been up to for a week, been hanging out together, Aussie and a Kiwi or a hybrid.
1: It's made in heaven, <laughs> a, match made in it heaven. a match made in heaven. It was a
0: match made in heaven, we had a great time in Sydney and Canberra, we're going to talk about that because we had a massive um, uh, Uh, advancement of our campaign for a public postal bank for Australia, which is why we invited you to participate. And we're also going to talk about, um, at first pass, the the latest United Nations report on Xinjiang and the the Uyghur question, because, um, well, I'll I'll give you a question without notice. We use the word disinformation. What's the right word? Uh, Four letters, lies. Lies. And... Yeah, so this is, we're going to have some important things to say about that. All right, but before we begin, remember, like the show, subscribe if you haven't already subscribed, and when you do, click the bell icon so you're notified of new shows, and please help us share it. Um, We present information on this show that a lot of other people in Australia don't, and frankly, most people in Australia aren't game to, and while we have the platform, and we haven't been cut off it yet, um, help us share it. Your sharing is very important. And also, make comments below, right? Participate in the conversation. We join in as we can, but that's an important part of the process. We we really value um, the feedback. But let's get straight into it. A huge week in Canberra for a people's bank. So, um, like I said, Matt and I spent the last week in Canberra from Monday to uh, Thursday afternoon. And we were there with Angela Cramp. Matt, you got to meet the one and only Angela Cramp from the licensed post office group. Um, and we're there to talk to as many members of Parliament as we could about a, our policy proposal for a public postal bank, and we had a forum that we've been advertising on the show for a while on Wednesday, midday Wednesday, for the post office bank, which went very well. Um, so, Matt here, you got to... Now, I should remind people, if you, if you don't remember Matt, from previous episodes of our show, you're a former Cabinet Minister of New Zealand, Minister for a whole bunch of things, um, etc. So you've got you've got experience in this. Your party started the Postal Bank in New Zealand. You got to talk to, I think you met people from pretty much every party yes, this so. week. So um, give the audience your general impressions of what you found in relation to this issue in the Australian Parliament.
1: Well, it's a issue that it's time has come, and you're actually rediscovering your history in Australia as New Zealand did any government worth its salt in Australia knew the role that the state played generally in the development of the country and where private enterprise has no interest in the longer term view of development and the needs of the people uh, provisions for commercial activity but also social services and that's a bank par exemplar and your previous uh, politicians or political leaders um, of the stature of John Curtin Mm -hmm. and Chifley and then back to uh, Ted Theodore in Queensland, and at first I thought it was just Labor politicians. But reading more on the history of Australia, uh, even conservative politicians or middle of the road politicians, different than Labor, they also saw the importance of the bank. Certainly, the Australian people clearly yeah, did, and that's yeah. the experience uh, in New Zealand. So my impressions are that you're on the way uh, to an idea has gripped the people, mm. the people of Australia to put it mildly, don't think much of their four cart or the big banks, the cartel, it's a cartel. It is, yeah. But but it's it's a a cartel that has its hands around the throat of the public, and actually impedes development. They present themselves Mm. as modern, part of Australian development. They impede it, and they impede it because the net, it's not actually even their fault, that's the economic system. They make money, they return to their shareholders. And their shareholders aren't the Australian people, which is the difference with a public bank. The shareholder is the people. And the shareholder being, it's a bit like the succession of the monarchy, you know, the the queen is dead, long live the king or whatever. Uh, It's happening at the moment. Well, it's the same with the country. Uh, You know, we we live our life in this, but it continues on through our children. The country doesn't die. So you're dealing with a different uh, animal or oh, shouldn't call it an animal, but a different uh, uh, mechanism. When you're talking about a bank backed by the people and what it's able to do uh, within the economic armory and tools that any government, uh, left wing, centre, centre left, centre well, right, whatever they want to call themselves, uh, which has must have this in their armory to benefit both the social and economic needs of the people. So my impressions after Canberra, apart from the two hats I saw of Barnaby Joyce and (laughs) Bob Bob Catter, which you don't see in New Zealand politics, they're a little bit larger than life, these people. Uh, And the cross-party support, which we didn't actually have in New Zealand. Mm. So we've got similarities, we've got differences in how we get our bank. But we got our bank, you'll get your bank.
0: Now, that's... Really heartening to see that, because you you remember how well the struggle that you had. So take that to heart, um, audience. Uh, Matt thinks we're well on the way, based on what he saw. I will say we had a lot of meetings, including with two ministers, and we had um, no opposition, literally no opposition to the proposal. At worst, people were non-committal, but not non-committal negative, but non-committal positive. They just... You know, waiting to see, um, learn more about the proposal. Waiting to see how the politics shape up. Um, most of it, what we got was genuine uh, support. <laughs> here's a here's a classic Aussie understatement that is actually a ringing endorsement. One Liberal MP said, "Well, it's not the dumbest idea I've ever heard no. of." So there, there's Dan with faint praise. Dan with faint There's a ringing endorsement for you. Um, so that's the that's what's building in the Parliament. We said as soon as the election was over, regular viewers would remember this, that we're going to set the agenda on this. And, and what our week showed that that's actually happening. Um, so the centrepiece was the forum on the Wednesday, the midday, the, the, the forum for uh, the in the Parliament House in one of the committee rooms. Um, and the purpose of the forum was to be able to brief politicians and their staffers and the media on the um, proposal. Now, apart from the media not bothering to turn up because the media don't actually... Um, set the agendas anyway. They they try and shape the agendas, but you know they're going to they're going to catch up eventually. Um, the forum itself went very well, and we're going to play a highlights package now, so you, that so that um, you get a flavour of how that forum went. I'll just mention it was chaired by um, Andrew Hurst, who's the chairman of the LPO group, and Angela Cramp, who's the executive director of the LPO group. Matt was the featured speaker, but we had. Four politicians attend, three of whom got to speak because one had to leave, um, and the speakers include Bob Catter, uh, Malcolm Roberts from One Nation, and Jared Rennick from the Liberal Party, and they all had really good things to say and really um, committed themselves to supporting this policy, but we can assure you the support is broader than that across yes. the, 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 the building. It was well attended by staffers from the from the various parliamentary offices, from all parties, and I'll mention this one case um, I got to introduce myself to as an organiser, I was otherwise distracted, but I met one staffer on his way out and he was standing there and it was like his jaw was open he said, this is completely inspiring. What I've just heard is completely inspiring. This is nation building stuff, right? That was his comment on the way out. So let's just play the package and then we'll come back. I'd also
2: like to acknowledge Dale Webster, whose new service, the, Re- the Regional, has documented the true extent of bank closures across Australia. The LPO Group, the Licensed Post Office Group, was founded in 2012 by Angela Cramp and myself. We saw a need to do something about the plight of licensed post offices and the Australia Post Network as a whole, whether it was licensed networks or their company-owned outlets. We were, as licensees, facing very difficult financial problems. Many of us were trading insolvent. We needed to do something. But what we found over the last 10 years, with the loss of our recent CEO, is that we're now heading back into that same direction. And we are not prepared to sit back and watch that happen. Post offices are a vital part of the community. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a very outback country town or whether you're in downtown Beresfield, like I come from, which is in Newcastle, or whether you're in Shell Harbour, like Angela. We service the community that the banks don't want to know about. We service the community that big business doesn't want to know about. They're our bread and
1: butter. They're our people. And our forebears in this, in all parties, recognised that unrestrained financial power was a danger to countries because you become a hostage to that unregulated financial power. And banking is at the heart of that financial power, of what countries need to exist. And what we had in uh, New Zealand, uh, which actually assisted us to get back a public bank, we don't call it the Kiwi Bank, uh, was the fact that uh, the banks were sold to private interests, and what's worse, they were Australian banks. And I'm sorry to say that I even joined in the little bit of nudging to get people to say, how dare we be owned by Australian banks? Um, I felt a little bit ashamed in my heart at doing this bit of jingoism. But it reflected the fact that New Zealanders recognised that they as a people were not in control of their future. They didn't control or have a very strong financial interest in the greatest power in the country how you raise your capital, how you spend it, and where the profits go, then you're actually throwing away your sovereignty. And that's what we had done. So it wasn't just our version of the Commonwealth Bank, which was the Bank of New Zealand, which was sold for a song to a privately owned Australian bank, uh, but everything else, the airline, the rail, uh, the insurance industries, the post offices, everything went. Uh, in a very short period and it's taken now from that period the 80s 40 years to to get back to a stage where the recognition that wealth is created collectively and should be used for collective good and to do that you need a government which has the strength and the vision to do that. Three years later there were 800,000 customers for the post office bank or we called them at that time the Kiwi Bank. I forget where the name came from, but people suddenly called them our Kiwi banks. We called it the Kiwi Bank, which was a very powerful symbol. And it was making such a profit that it paid back the $60 million plus more. And it's been an enormous success. A success because, we showed, you could put a bank up and it could compete. But the, but the bank itself is now owned as a concept by the people of New Zealand and neither the National Party, the Conservative Party, or even the Labour Party, were game to sell it. We have
3: petrol refineries in Australia. Don't quote me on the figures. They do 6,000 uh, megalitres, right? China, when it builds a refinery, has 100,000 megalitres. <laughs> they can get the money to build at economies of scale. And people say, oh, they got cheap labour. Well, they don't have cheap labour now. I mean... <laughs> It's not a cheap Labor country anymore. Um, Why they succeed, as Japan did with the zaibatsu and the government lending instrumentalities, they're able to build industries overnight. So um, you've got a bank that takes a bigger picture. It doesn't take a narrow, stupid, short-term picture. It takes a bigger picture, long-term picture. Uh, And when that was done, We were able to preserve a quarter of that industry that carried the economy of our state. I said, well, that's a map of Australia, isn't it? And he said, yeah, of course it is. I said, no, it's not. It's a map of Australia, shorn of a little narrow coastal strip um, and a little dot around Perth. The rest of it's empty. There's only a million people living there. I mean, how much longer do you think that's going to go on for? Those who cannot learn from history will be doomed to repeat it. Give me the money and give me the dams and I will put a million people uh, in the Northern Territory I don't know about the other parts of the Northern Territory but I can speak with authority in the border areas in the Northern Territory and the mid- all of inland North Queensland and I will give you a million people where there are now 40,000 people.
4: My, my name is Senator Malcolm Roberts I represent the people of Queensland and I want to tell you just how excited I am to be here. This is wonderful, wonderful uh, presentation. Thank you so much, Matt. It is a really wonderful initiative because I'm going to talk just very briefly about some some notes I made while Matt was talking. I want to thank, first of all, Angela Cramp. I haven't met Andrew before. Comes from a decent place. I've been in Beresfield, I've lived near there. Um, I want to thank Robbie, Robbie Barwick. And I want to thank the Citizens and Electoral Council. It's not the in thing to do to thank the CEC, but I want to thank them. I want to acknowledge them because they've done marvellous work over many, many years. And they, we would be far worse off in this country if the Citizens Electoral Council and the Citizens Party had not done their work. So please thank Craig Isherwood and the others in this city council. I think it's, it's really important to be proud of people that do the job for the country rather than hide because some people, because they're doing so well that they're painted as villains when they're not. So it's really important to stand up for them. Without the public bank, there is no accountability on the big bosses, yeah, yeah. none at yeah, yeah. all. Yeah,
3: yeah. No policemen.
4: And that's why the treasury in our country looks after the globalists. They're not interested in doing what we need. And there's wonderful figures there on, on the value adding of aluminium. This is what we need. We just got the Senate to approve an inquiry into the project iron boomerang. That's what we need. And we need the whole country opened up and it will only happen as, as Bob Bobcatter said, by getting a, a public bank. So I just want to finish Angela with thanks again for the people who've organized this. I strongly support it. Our staff have been working on this for a while, as you know. Um, and the third thing that's proven is that people of this country need service for all the reasons Bob mentioned. People need service, small business needs service, the Aboriginals need service, the whole country needs service. We need a better service
5: from a banking system. The public bank is the way to get it. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Uh, Hi guys, it's great to be here today. And uh, can I thank Angela and Robbie and the guys for putting this uh, event on today. Uh, I'm I'm a very passionate uh, backer of a public bank uh, for two reasons. I'm passionate about services to regional Australia and to metropolitan Australia. I do believe it is the role of government to provide essential services. Uh, the other passion of mine is monetary policy and the way that monetary policy is used. Um, and as Malcolm touched on, uh, you know, it, it's the most powerful uh, weapon or instrument, if, if that's how you want to call it, a country can have is the ability to issue its own currency, and that does play into how our banking system works within Australia. You know, what, what I find very frustrating is, is that what they don't get is with these monopolies once they're privatised, is that they just get taken over by rent-seeking parasites and that 's what they are you know our energy market has basically been destroyed by rent seeking parasites we saw in the GFC Wayne Swan banned short selling of the of the private banks I mean I could just you know I was, I was tears of blood when he did that because I'm like these guys will short every other stock on the stock exchange uh, in good times um, but yet they wanted protection from shorting when the GFC was on and yet you know they're happy to bring other companies to their knees so yeah we've got a long way to go there's only three of us in the room and i should just note the guy there that sat there before was ross Cadell. he's a new national party senator he had just had to go back and do uh senate uh sitting in the senate chamber but uh it was good to see him here so um hopefully we've got someone from the nats now who will champion uh, a um a people's bank as well so thanks very much for your time today well as post office people we are delighted to hear you all support the idea of A postal bank like the government doesn't seem to be too opposed to it so we would like all you guys to work out how it works we have the network we're ready for the work bring it on
0: Um, so look this is something that uh, the people who are part of this program if you're regular viewers if you've participated in this campaign in any way pat yourself on the back this is a major, major milestone. You just heard Matt tell us we're well on the way, right, to achieving this. And your party did achieve it, right? Um, it uh, it's, we'll end this segment, Matt. I just wanted to go back to your party and you and your country um, because um, uh, it's, it's relevant in the context. People say to us all the time, well, if you get what you want, if you get this bank, how do you make sure that they don't, undo it? How do you make sure they don't privatise it, etc.? And the story of New Zealand Post Bank, the Kiwi Bank, is one of immediate success, but then there was efforts, but there's a political lesson to be learned from New Zealand, because despite the efforts or the intention of people to take the bank down, politically it's, been, it's proved impo- impossible.
1: Oh, it has, and it's akin to the uh, no nuclear weapons policy in New Zealand. Uh, the Conservative parties were against the the abolition of New Zealand's role in, under the nuclear umbrella, nuclear weapon free, big step for the country. But the population, is 90%, says we don't want to be part of any nuclear weapon alliance, thank you very much. So even those parties that, famously, one party said if we become the National Party, uh, which is our Liberal Party, if we become government, when we become government, it'll be gone by lunchtime. <laughs> well, they were gone by lunchtime. Yeah, yeah, and it's entered the political lexicon. So parties be very careful with what they say. And that shows you the power of the public. No government can mess with it. I uh, hopefully. I mean, there can be some big shocks, but it's going to take an mm. enormous shock of some sort. Uh, chicanery but the and public. The support,
0: say, and the support of the bank is the same. And quality. the bank
1: is the same thing. Yeah, public. Uh, they dislike the behaviour of the private banks. They dislike the fact that they're Australian-owned banks. That's sort of an element <laughs> of chauvinism comes in there, Australian banks. But the thing is that they're private banks, and they've now had the experience of a public bank being re-established. Remember, we're talking yeah. about re what was done. The baby was thrown out with the bathwater. Have reforms. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't throw out your baby. Uh, that's what happened. <laughs> Commonwealth Bank, we had our Bank of New yeah. Zealand. Public Bank... Uh, Owned, had it had a quarter of the of the banking activity in New Zealand. it worked with local councils it worked with local businesses. I mean there's a section of the business class of course are sensible and they realize that a state bank can work with them mm. because it has a longer term vision it's not driven just by a narrow profit base. it has to make a profit uh, or commercial return, but it has a social aspect to it of development for the country. So yes, we've achieved the bank and the force behind it. It's different. So we've got a lot to share, the ANZAC tradition across Australia and New Zealand, the history of our labour movement which got the bank going and joined in by other sectors of the population which realised that there was a sensible, rational thing to do. But the, uh, we don't have the same constitutional arrangement. So when you're talking about building it in, it, it's a strength in New Zealand, one, ca- one cabinet, no state parliament. So in terms of yeah. getting something, it's a little less complicated to drive it through. Uh, and then it 's but we don 't have a constitution, so things uh, other mechanisms and things can be, can be vulnerable because if you can do it quickly this way, you can also yeah, change yeah, it yeah, yeah. Uh, so actually you 're in a position to see what we 've done the bank 's there, but the, now the thing is the expansion of the bank it 's not just a retail bank so it's not just savings deposits it 's also a bank which has the ability to do what the Bank of New Zealand did to be a full banking service. Mm. In now in competition to the to the other four banks,
0: and go back to economic development for the country.
1: Yes, well, the the, the minister who drove this, the leader of my party, who had been the president of the Labour Party, and been driven out of that party mm. uh, when it turned very far to right wing economic policies, uh, and sold the Bank of New Zealand and every other public asset built up over generations, which made such a return to the the people. Um, the he led the campaign, uh, and uh, as a cabinet minister, and so you know what you're looking for in Australia, and I've been in as a champion as well.
0: Yes, and uh, I think a champion will come, will rise in response to the cry of the people. Cometh the
1: hour, cometh the man or woman.
0: No, exactly, um, and the specific in in New Zealand's case, which I think is fascinating, is. Um, the, the various you know, business pressures uh, come to bear and the New Zealand Post and the other shareholders in the bank, Kiwi Bank said, well, maybe we don't want to have this anymore. And instead of the government using that as an excuse to privatise it, which 20 years ago, that's exactly what would have happened, the government instead has taken it into direct ownership and has pledged to expand it. And this is what, if you get public banking back, mark my words, Australians, you get public banking back after we had it for 86 years, lost it, saw how terrible that experience was. If we get it back, we're not going to lose it again. Well,
1: it's right? very interesting because the uh, once the Labor-led government, and our party was, the, was part of that government, uh, once uh, it was defeated in the 2008 election, the bank had been going for six years. It had 800,000 customers for that time in a population of 5, Five million, million, so yeah. that's quite something. Um, it had stopped the private banks who had been closing branches at a rapid rate everywhere particularly in the regions mm. particularly and it's worse in australia with the distances sure. but they were closing them in the regions and suddenly they stopped closing they said oh, we can keep <laughs> our banks open no no amount of argument no amount of public pressure no amount of saying you couldn't do this you're being mean and they just say get lost i mean that's the arrogance of it but when Sub- they had to compete suddenly they had a bank which said we're staying open oh we yeah. can stay open too yeah. suddenly they didn't have to put all the charges on check accounts or well, checks have gone now, but whatever yeah. the different, you know, the fees all the time. You get, you get this account and you think, what's this, what's this account? What's, the, what what's, the, that what's that charge? this charge? Yeah. And suddenly they were held accountable uh, because of the competition. So we're using good old capitalist principles. Yeah. You want competition? Here's <laughs> competition. You go on about competition, but you have a cartel. Yeah. And they go on about competition and the fruit of free enterprise and you get things done. And then they make a cartel and set, and jack it up. So the bank was there. And when the Conservative Party, the National Party, came in, I to confuse Australians because our National Party is your Liberal Party. Yeah. Don't have a split group um, of Conservative parties. They tried. They ideologically still, it was in their milk, we have got to sell this thing. They're getting pressure from the banks. Big lobbyists. Mm. You want lobbyists, sure. banks are lobbyists. Tell me about it. But... <laughs> And they started the talking about, let's have mum and dad invest it. The public wouldn't buy it. So they did the next thing. They gave two government corporations, POST, which the bank was based on, the POST network, like you're proposing here, and the Accident Corporation, Comp- uh, Conversation Corporation. And they gave them shareholding, and the government had 51%. But that was actually a prelude to let's wait for the time and pounce. Yeah, yeah. It came the time, but a Labour government was back in. A Labour government was uh, Ansible to the public, which says keep our bank, it was called Jim's Bank, under the name Jim Anderson, Jim's Bank, leave Jim's Bank alone. And the, the Board of New Zealand Post, which is quite conservative now, appointed by the National Party, mm. there's a lesson in there. And the Kiwi Bank, conservative bank, waiting, they said... uh, Sorry, the um, Action Competition Court. Well, we'll stay in, but you've got to allow us to sell 25%, 30% of our holding to bring in private capital. And this is interesting because the bank needs to expand. There's no doubt about that. Um, It's got uh, a 5% share now, whereas the Bank of New Zealand in its heyday had 25% of the banking business. It does need to expand. It can get there, but we'll come to that. But the... uh, the government call their bluff call their bluff because when it re- actually been floated the idea earlier in the year with all the learned articles in the media and the press you know how it can be done you can see a campaign unfolding the bank needs capital or it's kind of, it didn't it's damning it with fake praise it's done a good job it's there but it's only a small part it can't really compete with the big banks well no not if you don't give it the capital injection and mm. a sensible investment and this is where the politics comes in. And when you get your campaign unfolding, your people and what well, shouldn't be confused by these people who act as the experts, yep. as though some law, <laughs> law passed on to Moses that this is how it must be. Only the private banks, that only, apparently the only part of credit or capital is privately created. Well, tell yeah. me something else. We've just been through COVID. Yeah. We see how money is created. Yep. Now our governments make choices. So it's up to countries to decide. For instance, how much they spend on 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 well, war actually they call it defence, but it's not mm-hmm. war. So suddenly there's a war coming. You can spend a lot of money. We've had the experience in Australia with the Second World War, the First World War. We've had exactly the same. Suddenly there's plenty of money. Yep. You make your choices, and you either invest. So the government has taken back all the. By play from about February this year, we're putting things in the paper, seeding articles, getting people ready for some sort of privatisation, as though it's inevitable. What can you do? It's the tide, it's, it's the moon, it's the sun coming up. Push back, and the government's taken 100%. So they're in a position, they're nervous. I mean, we're talking politics, we don't get involved in New Zealand's internal politics. <laughs> the Prime Minister and others are nervous. And they're nervous about being told by the financial establishment that you can't do this. We read the show, we set the rules. You've been through this in Australia. You had the depression, you had the leaning by the British financial establishment on Australian government, you had the Lang government falling in '32. I, remember, I don't want to give a lecture, you know. You, got to,
0: you got to see Ted Theodore on uh, Bob Catter. On the wall, wall of Bob
1: Catter, <laughs> that was marvellous, you know. Yeah. There's Ted Theodore. These people, we should praise them, whatever peccadillos they've got, whatever we may not like. They had the courage yep. to be there ahead of us. So let's not betray. So it's what the same fight. Did. It's the same fight, a different form, different place. It's the same principle. Yeah, sovereignty.
0: Hear, hear. Well, thanks, Matt. Take heart, uh, viewers. This this campaign has got uh, rockets on now. Um, all right, let's move on because we we are actually trying to do this in um, efficiently today. We we have some time constraints. UN skullduggery produces another Weapons of Mass Destruction style farce and we're going to talk about this report but before we do we're going to announce something that um, uh, might get me some criticism but I don't care Um, but you and I had a great time because we took we took the opportunity because Matt's the assistant foreign minister well the former assistant foreign minister of New Zealand we took the opportunity to to have a meeting with the Chinese ambassador to Australia who's been in the news a bit lately because he's, he's done these appearances where the press have absolutely gone after him, both at the National Press Club and the other night on 7.30 Report. The person we met was a very different person to that depicted in the press. Yeah. Um, and we had dinner. And it was a great dinner. Peking duck. It was brilliant. Um, so we discussed... If, if I was telling people, if, if, we had to, if, I had, if I'm asked, what just quickly, tell me what you discussed. We discussed high-speed rail. That's what we discussed. It was really, really good. Um, China has a lot of. China is willing to cooperate with Australia on economic development. It's quite something. But Matt, you've had a lot of experience, so just just briefly give your impression on where you think you're an outsider, sort of, but you're an Australian <laughs> as well. But you, based on that conversation, where do you think our relationship with China is at?
1: Well, you've got a country, China, which is willing to be friends with Australia to have normal relations what they're facing is the ups and downs of governments here from the type of lunacy that uh, Minister Dutton used to give out to the world. I mean in New Zealand we looked at it aghast what's he talking about? What's he trying to do? We don't want to go and... We're preparing for war. Prepare for war, you know, it's just absurd ridiculous. And so here we were doing what your um, political leader should be doing and that is working closely with the ambassador to understand China, have China understand Australia, if there are differences. yeah. And the ambassador made that clear. We had, instead of, he didn't go into a, a prepared set of questions from a hostile interviewer who had predetermined what answers they wanted to get out of the ambassador. Yeah. Chop him off, clear him off, make him look as though he's uh, you know, an autocrat and authoritarian and dangerous. Um, it's, it's not the job of the media in my opinion. That to have interviews like that. If they're investigative journalists, they actually ask questions and wait for the answer.
0: We should want to know what China thinks.
1: Well, the ambassador, uh, as I say, talked to us and gave us the respect. You're you're a leader of a party or part of a leadership in in Australia. I'm a former minister of uh, New Zealand with an interest in these matters. And he gave us due respect and listened to our viewpoints as we listened to his um, and In fact, an interesting thing that the ambassador said to us is, of course, all countries make mistakes. So He, mm. he wasn't going in there and saying, my country's perfect, no. which our countries tend to do well, to tell the rest me about of the it. world. We are democratic. We lead the world. We're perfect.
0: We have values. He, where... talk, he,
1: he talked about uh, human rights, but as you say, the, the high-speed rail, well, that captures my attention. I drove with you from <laughs> Sydney to uh, Canberra, and you know, it took us quite a while. <laughs> Yeah. Um a high speed train, we would have been there in thirty minutes, twenty minutes. And yeah. I've been in China on that. That tells you something. A country which in nineteen forty nine had been attacked by the Japanese, ravaged by Japanese imperialism, and prior to that by all the Western powers. And Australia and New Zealand as part of the British Empire were part of that history of of the exploitation, plundering of China. But from nineteen forty nine, whatever the Uh, issues, whatever the criticisms might be of that period, a country of now a billion people has managed to put itself in a position where it can build high-speed rail. So something must, they must have done something right. So let's show them some respect. Mm. And is there something we can do? I don't know of any other country that has offered Australia, which does need rail, with your vast distances, even more than New Zealand, we could do with it, but Australia even more. What a possible partnership. up to the Australians whether they take it, but instead as uh, a path to war. Now a war costs a lot of money. A war destroys. So wouldn't it be better to see if you can negotiate and work and and, and, and work with some and come to this report on the on the Uyghurs. Well, uh, what was interesting with the ambassador is he said to us, you know, that China's got human rights issues like any other country. He didn't say there's not things yeah. that could be discussed. He wasn't in terms of the the of the visit of. Uh, uh, Mrs. Bachelet, who was the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, um, Human Rights, sorry, uh, he, you know, she came and he mentioned he knew of her report that or uh, her statements at the time. But he was also aware that the report has now been in uh, the United States, oh sorry, in the United Nations and has been worked on by a number yep. of people. Not. High Commissioner, and I look at the report. It's the office, it's not the High Commissioner's report.
0: Let me go through some some notes I've got here, um, because what was interesting about his comments on that, which Sarah Ferguson on seven thirty was not interested in hearing what he actually had to say, um, but, but when he said what he said to us about the report, uh, we had already perceived the same problem in the report. So I just I just want to go through because we have a team of people working on this report and as in, on this show in the last month there's been a bit of a drama around this report coming yeah. out and that's why there was an event a few weeks ago where i got kicked out for asking a question in at a public meeting etc because all these events were held in the context of this report right everyone knew it was coming out and the the anti china crowd who try to weaponize human rights were front running it right then the report came out and they're saying see see china's the the un saying um, crimes against humanity. But here's the thing there are very strong reasons to believe that the report was not written by the commissioner, her name is Michelle Bachelet, or that she has deliberately distanced herself from it. Um, it does not, the, why, what are those reasons? One, it doesn't reflect the views she expressed after her visit to China. She gave a public statement at that time. She praised the Chinese government's success in lifting the people of Xinjiang out of poverty. Two, it was not issued by the United Nations Human Rights Commission headquarters in Geneva, where it's based, It was, and where she was based. It was issued in New York. Three, it was issued after Michelle Bachelet stepped down as the Human Rights Commissioner. Um, four, it was not signed by her which is contrary to normal practice, where the lead UN official for any report should sign off on the report to verify its authenticity. And five, her name, Michelle Bachelet, does not appear anywhere in the report. right? And there's a, So those are the reasons you think, well, hang on, there's a public statement she made, there's a report that says very di- different things to those pub- that public statement, it didn't come from her office. It's been released, however, in the name of her office,
1: right? Well, what's interesting in all of this is once again we come to the level of hypocrisy. In a number of interviews that I've had on the the war that's going on in the Ukraine, I've been accused by journalists uh, about whataboutism. And whataboutism, a strange term, seems to me when you talk about historical context. And what I notice with uh, China, the, the leaders in my country, conservative former Prime Minister John Key, and the leader of the uh, Foreign ministers, uh, foreign Affairs spokesperson Jerry Brownlee for the New Zealand National Party on the right of the political spectrum. Jerry Brownlee come out and said, um, nobody's talking about the terrorist threat that China's yes. had to deal with. And I noticed an interview I saw on the ABC with a representative of the Uyghur community here, he talked about East Turkestan. And he's got a right to do that, and he'd studied in Turkey. He didn't talk about the uh, genocide that Turkey's accused of against Armenia. No. <laughs> he didn't talk about any other of the genocides that we've got. I mean, in, nobody in the United States talks much about the genocide of Native Americans. And the Chinese government, just don't get stuck into Australia on the genocide that has occurred here in our country. I well, mean, I'm born in Australia. Mm. I think I've got a right to speak about it. The invasion. The position that Aboriginal people, in I don't think they could really get stuck into that in terms of human rights. So uh, none of that is mentioned. And by the way, there's a United Nations uh, report from the rapporteur on Julian Assange and the treatment of him. So my point is that suddenly this report, with all its flaws, without anybody actually reading I suspect that most of the people talking about it have never read it or analysed. But they say, we've got a report here which we can use to bash the Chinese government. Now, if there are things in there that are critical of China, which are which can be sustained, then so be it, and then present it. But don't use it as an excuse for us to have a war with the Chinese people.
0: 100%. And if you don't do it in an even-handed way, you're not going to get... Just say you... Let's just talk hypothetically. Let's just say there is a problem, that, a genuine problem that gets identified. But if the UN process, through this manipulation that we think has gone on behind the scenes, presents it to China in an uneven-handed way, where there is this extre- extreme hypocrisy, where the Americans aren't expected to respond to any of their problems or anyone in Europe, etc. But, well, what's China going to do? They're going to say, get lost, right? Yeah. You do not treat us this way. And, and so then you know that the whole process isn't genuine. And I want to cite, we were talking about this on the, on the weekend when we were having our lunch in, in Sydney, There was a movie made, it's a really good movie that people should watch, it's called State Secrets, and it's the story of Catherine Gunn, who worked for GCHQ, which is the signals intelligence in the United Kingdom, and it's how in the lead up to the Iraq war, she saw American messages to the British saying, dig up as much dirt British intelligence saying, dig up as much dirt on the UN ambassadors of these countries as possible so we can blackmail them into voting our way in the UN. That is how this is. Now, I don't want to propose it like this. The UN is the best system we've got. Unfortunately, it is the system. But do not take these sort of things at face value. This is a sort of thing that can go on behind the scenes. And it's, and it's, it's depicted um, quite well in that book. Let me just go through some elements of the report, and then I want your final comments on it. Um, the big issue has been the word genocide in relation to Xinjiang, which has been bizarre because it's the population of the Uyghurs that are accused of being genocided has grown in this in the same period. Um, the report doesn't mention it. Um, in common with other ethnic groups in China, Uyghurs were not subjected to the one-child policy. The Uyghur population in Xinjiang has grown significantly. In the reports. 48 pages, we find the word may, may 50 times, the word possible 14 times, could 13 times, alleged 12 times, appears 8 times. That suggests almost 100 times there are elements of doubt. There are allegations and there are suggestions of human rights abuses, but the degree of proof required to say so cert- with certainty hasn't been met. Forced labour is mentioned 23 times in the report. Surprisingly though, even though there are some allegations, the mentions of forced labour usually relate to China's actions to prevent it. And the report actually has to acknowledge that. The report finds that, and on forced labour, it doesn't, although this report cites the organisation called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in other areas, it doesn't cite this famous forced labour report by ASPE that we debunked. And that's the reason I was thrown out of that meeting. So Aspie is crowing about this UN report saying, see, see, we're vindicated. No, no, why haven't they cited your famous report if your, if, if your work was so good? The report finds a clear link between the voluntary education and training centres in Xinjiang and ongoing employment. In other words, they're working. People are working. Now, the report makes suggestions of coercion and encouragement to take jobs. And I've seen videos of this where young women in... Poor Uyghur families in their late teens have been told, "Look, you could get a job," and they're shy and they don't want, like you know. And their dad says, "Oh, I don't really think so," etc. And the and the the government official comes back, "No, no, please come and get a job. We'll make it work for you," etc. And and sometimes these girls they feel pressure and they're crying. Oh, it's a... but the ones that take up the offer because they're not actually forced to. They take the ones that take up the offer even under this so called coercion. And it reminded me of when. I have to say this. My own daughter was so nervous. She's got a job at KFC. She was so nervous. She wanted a job. She wanted to make some money. But she got the job and then, oh, oh. And I'm thinking, so no, you got the job. You've got to go now, right? And until, once your confidence built up, though, totally transformed. And you can see the documentaries China has done on this same question. These same girls would go and work in a factory. And suddenly, they're, they're foreman in their division of the factory, right? Still rather quite shy types. But their confidence is just blossoming. They go back home to their family. They're bringing presents, and they're different people. I mean, this is a normal thing, and that's what gets demonised in China. You can watch the documentaries well, look, on it yourself. I'll
1: have some respect for the criticisms uh, of China from our governments uh, when any of them take up the killing of the Khashoggi in the Turkish embassy by Saudi Arabia, when any of them take up the atrocities uh, in the Yemen, and when sometimes yeah. some. some attention is paid by the Australian government to the crimes by Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange through the Wikipedia uh, demonstrated that they take no notice of it. We have yeah. the pictures of the Apache yeah. helicopter gunning down innocent people in Baghdad. What has happened? Nothing. Where is the denunciation? And, and, and that's the hypocrisy. It goes on and on. Yeah. So if you've got that level of hypocrisy and whataboutism... How are the Chinese supposed to react?
0: And here's the next... And this is... The next point I was going to make is the key nub here. China had a severe terrorism problem, and this report at least acknowledges that. Yeah. And your opposition foreign spokesman in New Zealand sure, made everyone. that point and got attacked for it because the human rights mafia funded by the United States and the Brits, etc., that are trying to attack China over human rights are trying to pretend it wasn't responding to a terrorism problem. Not only does the report actually acknowledge the terrorism, it acknowledges there have been no terrorist incidents in Xinjiang and mainland China since this program started. And it was a horrific wave of terrorism the Chinese were suffering. Um, the report expresses some concerns at potential abuses of uh, individual rights resulting from the program in response to terrorism. But it, doesn't, it finds no incontrovertible evidence of incarceration of millions of Uyghurs as incessantly claimed by the mainstream media. Bachelet, the the commissioner, visited China and set up courses of action to address these concerns. They had the the concerns that she raised with them. They were agreeing to things they could do to address it, right? Um, She confirmed her office is in ongoing discussions and training with China on international norms on human rights. And then here's the kicker. The measures taken by China... To quell terrorist activity, have not resulted in one single Uyghur death. Yeah. Unlike the United States' war on terror, sorry, I should say, except for executions of actual terror, convicted terrorists, yes. right? Acknowledged by the world community. Yeah, yeah. Unlike, how did America respond to its wave of terrorism? It's called the War on Terror. No. Two million dead later, yeah. multiple wars. Yeah. That's the contrast. And yet, the perpetrator of that mass murder is accusing China of genocide. And we genocide. might think of
1: the detention camp called Guantanamo. Yes. The people kept and what has happened to that. Look, and Abu Ghraib. Could I just add, this is where history is important. We in Australia and New Zealand have had governments, that, hypoc- hypocrites. Yeah. Think of Indonesia in 65, up to a million people killed with death lists handed over by ASIO, embassy staff, Australia and New Zealand, to the Indonesian military to go out and kill people. And that's a matter of them. record. A matter of record, yeah. one million people kept in concentration camps, two million people in those most terrible conditions. What exists in Vietnam and Indochina? Five million people they dead. Who went there? Our soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a matter of historical record. And if we come, in, I'm a lawyer, and you come to the table and talk basic and law school, in matters of equity, come to the table with clean hands. China is not exempt from criticism. There's a lot, sure. There's a massive, and, but, but think of the scale of their history. Think of what they've been through. Think of the millions of pounds and millions of dollars that were poured in to stop them having their revolution in 1949 instead of finding some way to help the development of China. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole of the Cold War, Weapons pointed at China, forcing them to spend so much on their military, the same with Russia, uh, as the deliberate policy of the United States to weaken these countries. Not cooperation, not working together. Little tiny Cuba, 10 million people, have doctors, (laughs) have a health system, an education, and what do they get from the United States? And we join in with it. Uh, they get an economic blockade, Mm. and they get oppression, they get attempts to assassinate their leader. I mean, how many assassination attempts of Fidel Castro? Now, this may seem a little way longer, but it's connected... Of course. ...to a pattern. and That's where whataboutism comes in. Whataboutism is, well, let's talk about all of these things, and then let's come back and put China into the picture. We still got criticisms? And have we listened to any of their criticisms of ourselves? I was little, I was only young, but I remember my dad pointing out that when, I think it was Premier Khrushchev, was responding to a Cold War attacks by Mr. Menzies. I was only a little kid, mm. but I remember my dad telling me. And Khrushchev got up and said, well, let's just talk about the Aboriginals. <laughs> and absolute horror. What are talking about? The Aboriginals are treated so well, and et cetera, et cetera. What yeah, a terrible yeah. man. Yeah. So this... Certainly plenty to... There is certainly plenty to criticise the Soviet Union with the history of Stalinism. That's not the point. Let's come to the table with clean hands.
0: Matt, I couldn't agree more. And listen, um, on that note, I think we should wrap up the show because we are running short of time anyway. So... Thanks very much for appearing on the show. Thanks very much for coming and spending a week with uh, us here in Australia to help on, in our campaign and have these varied activities.
1: Uh, you, you're going to be successful with this bank. It's a most important thing, and it's a joint project between uh, the two countries. And i uh, just like to say that uh, I'm happy to give the New Zealand experience and help Australia. I've often said, New Zealanders have asked me, why have you not returned to Australia? I said, I was sent by Australia to help New Zealand. (laughs) They have a good sense sense of humour. And now I've been sent back (laughs) to to help. Thank
0: thank you to uh, the good folk of New Zealand for doing that. All right, so thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Um, Stay attuned to the the developments around the campaign now. I will mention one thing. One of the developments will be a, a concerted, um, targeting of all the councils in Australia to get them to pass resolutions. The night before our, our seminar, our forum in Canberra, the Strathfield City Council unanimously endorsed the proposal for a public post office bank. That's five. We want that to become a dozen, then 20, then 50, then 100, then hundreds. And the politicians will notice all that. There's a lot of goodwill there now. We just have to overwhelm them with public support. right? So that's something that you could participate in. Go talk, take the proposal to your councillors Ask them to pass resolutions to endorse it. We will follow that up from our office here. Um, But for now, what what we set out to achieve this week, we achieved. It was brilliant. And um, so stay tuned to the campaign. And tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report.